Hi everyone. It's so good that we can be together again in this way today, after another week. And wherever you are, and in whatever circumstances you find yourself today, I pray that God, through his Holy Spirit, will come and speak very directly and personally to you as we study his word together. We're continuing with our sermon series through the book of First Peter, and today we come to First Peter chapter 4 and verses 7 to 11. Events often shape how we choose to live. To take just one example, some of you may have had the privilege of going on an overseas holiday, and as the date of your departure nears, it radically affects how you choose to live. In the old days, you would cancel your milk and newspaper deliveries for those three weeks. Now, though, you do things like stocking up on prepaid electricity, organising someone to look after the house. There are bills to be paid in advance. There are out-of-office replies to be set up on the email. There are important things on your to-do list that you carefully check off one at a time as the day approaches. And then there are other things that you say to yourself, that's not urgent or important. I'll worry about that when I get back. Now that I've found the passports, I'll worry about actually tidying the rest of the cupboard when I get back. In the verses that we're going to look at today, Peter tells us about a sure and certain event that is going to take place and about which we should regularly and urgently think. And then having spoken about this event, Peter goes on to tell us about how the certainty of this event should affect some key areas of our lives. Let's have a look. First Peter 4 from verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift they have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Peter begins this section by stating an important fact. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. I'm sure you must have seen cartoon pictures of wide-eyed, strange-looking men, often in old robes with dishevelled clothes and hair and beard, carrying a sign on top of a large stick which boldly proclaims, The end is near. It's very easy for folk to laugh at the notion that the end of all things is near. A few years ago, there were people within a certain political organisation, which better remain nameless, who said that they would remain in power until Jesus returned, 
as if that were some mythical event that would never take place. In his second letter, Peter points out that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. People may scoff at the idea of Christ's return, but this is not a myth or fairy tale. It's a serious and authentic view of history. This world will not just go on year after year, as it always has done. It will one day end. And it won't end just because the earth is sucked into the sun, or there is a nuclear war, or we heat or otherwise destroy the planet through our mismanagement, although any or all of those things may take place before the end. Peter's words remind us that the world will end when Jesus returns to renew all things, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign for ever and ever. Amen. Living in a busy world with all its various daily problems and stresses on the one hand, and all its entertainments and excitements on the other hand, often leads to us forgetting this view of history. And Peter knows that we need to keep on bearing it in mind. Peter was there when Jesus ascended into heaven, and two angels appeared and said to the gathered disciples, This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. On the very last page of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we have the Lord Jesus appearing to the Apostle John and saying, Behold, I am coming soon. In Romans chapter 13, in a passage very similar to this one, the Apostle Paul writes this, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Of course, the fact that it is almost 2,000 years since Paul and Peter and the other disciples penned these words can lead to a certain sense of disappointment and doubt. But as Peter reminds us in that second letter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Perhaps it's also worth bearing in mind that when Peter says the end is near, he's thinking in terms of us living in the last days. And the last days, in biblical language, mean all the days between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So that Peter, living all those years ago, 
as well as us living in 2020, both live in this period of the last days. And Peter says that the end of these is near. There's a wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is part of the Narnia series. In the book, the great lion, Aslan, who really represents Jesus in the story, is about to go away. And Lucy, the young girl in the story who loves Aslan most, is deeply upset. Aslan says, Do not look so sad. We shall meet soon again. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? I call all time soon, said Aslan, and instantly he was vanished away. When Peter says that the end of all things is near, he means soon, in this sense of the word, imminent, pending, about to happen. And so, something for which we need to be prepared. And that's what Peter goes on to outline in the rest of these verses. The effects of thinking about Jesus' return should be seen in five areas of our lives. In our minds, in our prayers, in our love, in our resources, and in our gifts. Let's look at those one at a time. Firstly, the effects of thinking about Christ's coming should be seen in our minds. Verse 7, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled. Often thinking about Jesus' second coming does not lead to clear-mindedness, but rather foolish hysteria. How many Christian books predicting the sure and certain return of Jesus Christ in the 1980s now lie gathering dust in second-hand bookshops. No, Peter is urging us to be clear-minded about the world and how to live in it in the light of Christ's return. This coronavirus may still be the beginning of the end, and if it were, if Jesus were to return in six months' time, how would my life be different? Peter says that we are to be clear-minded and to be self-controlled. The word self-controlled can better be translated sober. Peter is not merely thinking here about not being drunk. He's speaking about a clear mind that is in touch with reality, the reality of a world beyond this world, an eternity, a heaven and a hell. Have you ever tried to have a discussion with someone who is drunk, it's not particularly pleasant, because in that moment they have no sense of reality, and it's impossible to connect them with reality. In the same way, as Pastor John Piper puts it, there is something about the present age and the present world that tends to put you out of your mind and make you drunk. When you drink up this world, it puts you out of touch with the reality of spiritual things. We need to be people who are connected with reality, namely sobering up from the addictive, inebriating power of worldliness. How do we do this? How do we remain clear-minded and sober? 
by coming along to church, or at least listening online, by attending a small group, by having a quiet time, reading God's word and talking to him in prayer, by reading good Christian books. All of these things are little doses of reality therapy. They keep us in touch with the way things truly are. To quote John Piper again, these activities help us to combat the creeping, drunkening, mind-altering, deluding effects of this God-ignoring world. So, Peter says, live intelligently. Look at the world, not with fear and terror. It's all too much. How is this all going to end? Nor with fantasy escapism, but rather with a clear-mindedness that allows you to focus and that allows you to pray. This is the second effect of thinking about Christ's coming. Verse 7. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Literally, for the purpose of prayer. Notice the closest possible connection between being clear-minded and sober and being able to pray. While there certainly should be passion in our prayers, prayer is not an ecstatic escape from reality. Prayer is not based on daydreams and unreality and fantasy. Rather, as one Bible commentator puts it, prayer is a sober, direct, profoundly thoughtful communication with the Lord. I sometimes catch myself praying simplistic and thoughtless prayers. Lord, please be with John. What do I mean by that? Of course God is with John. I suppose I mean, Lord, please let John know your presence, in which case I should probably say that. Although, of course, we are told that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, and so he is probably telling God that that's what I really meant. Prayer, though, should be thoughtful and careful. I'm finding great encouragement and challenge in the way in which Paul prayed for others. Listen to just one of his prayers from Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a prayer! <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be prayed for like that? Do you pray for others like that? We're to pray in the light of the fact that the end of all things is near. If we knew that Jesus were returning in six months' time, how would it affect how we prayed and what we prayed for? Thirdly, not only our minds, not only our prayers, but the effects of thinking about Christ's coming should be seen in our love 
Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned that toward the end of time, the love of most would grow cold. And in contrast to that, Peter urges that because the end is near, our love for one another should grow deeper. I think it's so important to understand that when Peter speaks of love here, he's not speaking about a feeling. The word deeply actually means fervent, zealous, earnest. It comes from a Greek word meaning at full stretch. So Peter is speaking about a muscular, active, practical love. Have you ever had your love for someone stretched? One commentator points out that our love, kindled by God's love, is stretched by exercise. If love collapses at its first test, it is not worthy of the name. And this idea of love being strenuous and stretched is described in a little bit more detail when Peter says that this kind of love covers over a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean that if we love one another, then God covers over our sins. It doesn't mean that sin in the church should be denied or swept under the carpet or covered up. No, Peter seems to be reflecting on Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, which says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. If love is the opposite of hatred, then covering over wrongs is the opposite of stirring up conflict. Peter is speaking about a practical love that is quick to overlook and forget small offences. As one commentator puts it, a person who is under the control of godly love, when a private personal injury has been done to him, acts as though nothing had occurred. In this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. That downward spiral of you hurt me so I hurt you back gets broken when we're prepared to overlook an offence. A person acting out of godly love is even prepared to absorb wrong in themselves rather than retaliate in kind. And even beyond that, this godly love is prepared not only to absorb harm and hurt, but in return offer prayer and acts of blessing. As Peter said earlier in chapter 3, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. How do you get that kind of love? How do you develop this? Only in community. You don't learn to be patient with other people on your own. You don't learn to forgive others if there are no others in your life that you need to forgive. 
you don't learn long suffering if there is no one around causing the suffering. And so I really want to urge you then to intentionally get involved in a community, in a church community. Get involved with a small group. Join one of our life groups. Most of them are meeting online at the moment. Or better yet, start a life group with just a few other people and start sharing your lives together. Start sharing some of your needs. Start praying for one another. And when things break down, because we are only human and we do sin and hurt one another, then try to find creative ways to hold on to one another in love. One of my favourite stories about love that can be stretched comes from a book about church conflict by a man called Arthur Boers. Let me read it to you. For one life-changing summer, my wife and I lived in a Catholic worker community in inner-city Detroit. Our home was an emergency shelter for women, children and families. As well as attending to the shelter's needs, we helped at a soup kitchen in the neighbourhood. Every Sunday there was a worship service in the house and the Eucharist was celebrated, followed by a potluck meal. This event attracted service-oriented believers from across the city, peace and justice activists, shelter guests and soup kitchen patrons. The services were always memorable. One regular attender, whom I'll call Donnie, was a homeless man who measured over seven and a half feet tall. One Catholic worker told me of the difficulty of finding him shoes. This giant attended every Sunday for many years. He would have loved nothing more than to lead the service, but because of mental problems, his skills were limited. Besides, this was a Roman Catholic Eucharist, and only a duly ordained priest could preside. During the Eucharistic liturgy, Donnie had an annoying habit of repeating the last phrase of everything the celebrant said. He'd heard the liturgy so often that he'd practically memorized it. Sometimes he tried to say the prayers and formulas before the celebrant did. His habit was distracting and hardly worshipful. But how does a community committed to compassion and hospitality deal with such a problem? Donnie was not mentally equipped for extended reasoning or careful conflict resolution. Besides, you want to be careful about getting into conflict with someone who stands seven and a half feet tall. There were temptations for the group. Some, no doubt, wished that Donnie would disappear. Some wondered about silencing or evicting him. Resentment and annoyance would have made it easy to resort to criticism, avoidance, name-calling or labelling. But those who serve in Catholic worker communities are known for their idealism and they succumbed to none of these temptations. The community wrestled with the issue for a long time. The solution was brilliant. Donnie was given one phrase in the service. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was his line and no one else's. At the appropriate moment, the celebrant elevated the loaf of bread in silence and waited for Donnie to say his line, which he did with gusto, enthusiasm, devotion and even panache. 
Donny got his wish for a meaningful leadership role in the service. He did so without detracting from the ceremonial solemnity for the rest of the worshippers. During the remainder of the service, Donny sat quietly and contentedly, a rare accomplishment at any time in his life. Donny stood out for many reasons, a freakish physical stature, mental illness, extreme poverty, membership in an oppressed race. It was not easy for this alternative Christian community to know how to include him, yet its brilliant solution was good for everyone. Thinking about Christ's coming is seen in our love. Fourthly, the effects of thinking about Christ's coming should be seen in the use of our resources. Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. One clever writer has said that hospitality is making your guests feel at home, even if you wish they were. When we think of hospitality, we tend to think of inviting people around for a cup of tea, or a meal, or a braai. But hospitality in Peter's day was a bit more involved than that. When the apostles and other travelling evangelists went through Europe and Asia and Africa, spreading the good news about Jesus, they were reliant on the hospitality of people in the churches, not just for a meal, but for a place to stay. There weren't too many hotels, and the inns that did exist had a very unsavoury reputation, so they stayed with local believers. And without that, the gospel wouldn't have spread. Not only that, but the early Christians used to hold all their meetings in people's homes, because there were no church buildings. Having an entire congregation in your home for a meeting would have been quite a thing, and in some cases quite dangerous, because it would have made your family a target for anti-Christian persecution. So hospitality was a big deal in the ancient world. Peter then is talking about a lot more than just a cup of tea and a piece of cake. He's talking about us using our resources to help expand the gospel. In the light of the fact that my house, my car, my wardrobe, my computer, our church building will one day be destroyed by fire, what should I be doing with these things now? Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and says, Brothers and sisters, the time is short. From now on, those who buy something should live as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world should live as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. When I give money to the Pinelands Baptist Church, it means that a teenager can have access to a Bible study on a Tuesday night. It means that a missionary couple can continue to fly a plane for Missionary Aviation Fellowship. It means that Bernadette can continue to preach the gospel in the community at Capricorn. When I give money to Open Doors International, it enables them to help and encourage believers living in countries where it is illegal to be a Christian. And of course, it's not only my money I can give. I can give of my time. There are those who are part of organizations that visit people in prison. 
who counsel victims of crime, or I could volunteer to help with some of the admin for these organizations. Thinking about the fact that one day Jesus will return and we will spend eternity, billions upon billions of years with him, should change our perspective on what we call our resources. Finally, the effects of thinking about Christ's coming should be seen in our serving others. Verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift they have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If you don't mind too much, I'd like to come back to this particular verse and the last couple of verses in our text next time, because there are, I believe, some very important things here when it comes to the idea of Christian ministry. But suffice to say at this point that in case we start commending ourselves because we love and forgive others, or at least put up with them, Peter tells us here that love must go further. Love for our brothers and sisters moves us to serve them in various ways, as we'll see next time, whether it's in preaching sermons or sending a WhatsApp or an email or making a phone call. Whatever gifts we've received from God must be used to serve others, to build them up in their faith. Events shape how we choose to live. Pastor Sandy Miller tells how he once visited a beautiful old country villa in France. One of the things that impressed him the most were the beautiful gardens. They were absolutely magnificent and immaculately kept. And Sandy saw the gardener working and he complimented the man on his beautiful work. And then he said to the man, how long have you been working here? And the man replied, 44 years. And Sandy said, And does the owner of the villa come here often? And the gardener replied, No, in fact I've never seen him. And Sandy said, You mean you've worked here for 44 years and you've never met the owner? And the gardener replied, That's right. And Sandy said, Well, with these gardens looking so beautiful, you must be expecting him to come tomorrow. And the gardener replied, No. Today, sir, I'm expecting him today. The end of all things is near. Therefore, let us be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can pray. Above all, let us love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Let us offer hospitality to one another without grumbling let us use whatever gifts we've received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. <laughs>